sorry, and, and the way in which you worship. Uh, I wish more, quote, adults uh, picked up your enthusiasm and love for the Word and love for the Lord that you've shown here today, this morning, just in the brief time that I've gotten a chance to spend with you, especially in our own church body back at home. I, I hope that we can get this kind of thing started once again. You know, though, the, the worship of the Lord uh, hasn't always been so important in my life. Some of the things that have happened, my baseball career, some of the experiences that I've had have not always leaned towards the Lord. And I could take you back. We're gonna, I'm going to share my testimony and how I came to know the Lord. And there's some pretty interesting things that have happened along the way that I'd like to share with you. Growing up, my parents didn't go to church. Uh, we were, quote, trying to be good people. We didn't go to church. And my mom wanted me to get good grades, go to a good college, marry a nice girl, have kids, and be happy. My dad wanted me to play professional baseball uh, to make him happy. Uh, what Frank wanted to do, though, was to continue doing what he was doing, and that was being very busy, accomplishing tasks, doing things, getting awards, trying to do all of the things that a young teenager thinks are really important. And my ear was really listening to what the world had to say and my peers because the world was saying, oh, how neat that your class and student body president, oh, how neat that you're dating the prettiest cheerleader, oh, how neat that you have the nicest car on campus, oh, how neat that you have an academic scholarship at Stanford University, oh, how neat that you're one of the best high school pitchers in the country. Wow. I thought I had it all. Was, didn't I have my act together at 17? Well, you know, the world, and as many of you can remember from the time before you came to know the Lord, the world seemed to have all of the answers, it said, on what would make me happy and fulfilled. And I thought at that ripe age of 17, as I graduated high school, I had it all. I'd signed for a big bonus with the Cincinnati Reds. They were going to go on that year to win the World Series. I was the third best high school pitcher in the nation at the time. Uh, through well over 90 miles an hour coming out of high school, was a bonus baby, blah, blah, blah. Thought I had it all. But now let me tell you the truth of what was going on. On the inside, because I didn't know God, and I was into playing religion, I was on a treadmill that all I was doing was making it turn faster. I was getting nowhere fast. I was listening to all of the things that the world and my friends and people were telling me were important and I was attaining those things. I was very goal-oriented. Still am. Very task-oriented. But back then, they weren't fulfilling. So I didn't realize that as yet. And I graduated, signed with the Reds, went on to play in the minor leagues, spent three years in the minor league system. And at the ripe age of barely 21, I was on opening day in 1979, the youngest player in the National League. This is before Fernando Mania. And... Frank Pastore and Bobby Wallace were to be the two big guns for the 80s uh, as the, the big stars coming up in the National League. Oh, yeah, I had done all the right things. I continued to quote. I decided to go to church, and I was into church and trying to be good. And I wasn't into drugs. I wasn't into running around with my wife, and I wasn't into you know sleeping in my own vomit and all those kind of fun things you do through adolescence. But what I was doing was doing all, quote, the right things. I married a girl that I loved. And we had been married about, oh, a year by the time I made that opening day. And I was finally there. You see, I had committed my entire life to making Major League Baseball. And I was finally there. And once I got there 
And I pitched opening day and got a standing ovation by 50,000 people and all that. And it was just a complete rush. It really was. It was awesome. But like most sin and most wrong perspectives, it's only fulfilling for a season. Following that and realizing that I had made my life's goal at 21 years old, Johnny Bench, who was not a Christian, Johnny Bench came up to me and said, Well, Frank, listen, now that you've devoted the majority of your life to reaching this point, need to focus on your second career. I said, wow, I just got here. I mean, don't be laying this heavy rap on me about thinking about, you know, if it's going to end or something. But it was very good advice. And I did take it to heart. And I thought about, well, you know, when my career is over, when I'm, oh, 40, uh, what is it that I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Never thinking that you are always one play or one pitch away from humility and the end of your career. So like most overpaid prima donnas, uh, I tied up my complete self-worth and how well I did on the field. You see, if I threw a shutout, much like getting an A on a paper, I was way up here emotionally. And when I got my brains beat in, I was down here because I was a complete failure in my own eyes. And of course, you have Sports Illustrated and the media and the national television audience to go ahead and reflect all of those attitudes. And I don't know about you guys, but the idea of working in front of 60 million people, you know, every two weeks or so, uh, where they see all of your mistakes and then, of course, relived in the paper the next day, uh, is only fun when you're doing well. When you're not doing well, it can be a real drag. Uh, anyway, so life was going on. Uh, I was attaining these accolades in professional sports. And, of course, I was getting all the material stuff that the world says, you're a success if you have a Porsche, a Mercedes, a condo, a beach house, uh, a big ring, and, and all of these things that I got trapped into. And, you know, every time I did that, it was like making the big leagues for that first time again. It left me wanting more. So I looked around and I saw these guys that were, quote, my Hall of Fame heroes with totally disastrous lights. Their kids hated them. They ran around on their wives. They had no self-respect. Okay, they made a million dollars a year, yeah, but they were an absolute wreck. And I said, you know, not really in things. I'm going to have to reevaluate here. Let's back off and sort of reevaluate and look at some things a little more deeply. So, aha, let's look at wisdom. Let's look at what the world has to say would make you fulfilled. I'm not into this materialistic drag routine anymore. I'm going to go into intellectual pursuits and try to find fulfillment that way. Okay, so we look at philosophy and talking to other ball players, and I guess I was starting to get into the new age without it being called the new age. You can create your own, re your own identity. I want that hitter to strike out, and I'm seeing him right now. I'm going to strike him out with this pitch. Well, it didn't work real well. <laughs> so that, that altering my reality didn't work real well, and also it left me still desiring more. Well, that's a pretty frustrating spot to be in. And I don't know about you, but when you've, you're, you've done all that you thought you were supposed to do and it left you empty, that's a hard place. I mean, I had the world, what the world said was the success. I was a pro athlete. I was 24, 5 years old. I was on Sports Illustrated. I had a television show. I was on the radio. Okay? I made, you know, big money. I had all of that. And yet, you know, I wasn't into drugs and I didn't have a heroin problem and all that kind of stuff. I was, quote, still trying to be a good guy, but I'm here to tell you 
you can still play by the rules, and without God, you're going to still feel like you're losing. Because you'll always lose if you don't have the Lord. Well, about this time, I'd like to share with you who I thought God was. God, to me, through the majority of my baseball career, was none other than Monty Hall. Let's make a deal, God. Okay? It was, oh, God. Let me win this next start against the Dodgers, and in return, I will give you... I won't drink, I won't cuss, I won't look at dirty magazines, I won't yell at my wife, and I'll be a good blah, blah, blah. And it was, let's make a deal. Sort of like polishing your rabbit's foot. And we have a program in Major League Baseball, because we work on Sundays, we don't get a chance to go to church, we have what's called Baseball Chapel. And in the mornings, we have a minister or a preacher or a guest speaker come in and share... uh, the Word, and we're supposed to get spiritually fed at that time. Well, it's also a great spot to show how religious you are and how good you are. So I had that whole system down pat, too. You see, I went to chapel all the time, and I convinced every, all the guys on the team that were, quote, living really sinful lives that I was much more religious and closer to God than they were if they only knew. Well, God, other than being Monty Hall and a genie and a rabbit's foot, was this great, big, wonderful God in the sky that couldn't wait to bless me with things if I only found a magic combination. And I was like, oh boy, if I do this and this and this, then I know he'll bless me with this. And, of course, that didn't work either. But what did work was every time that I was doing poorly and the world didn't have the answers, I turned to God. And God must have really liked my company. Because the only time that I talked to him was doing bad, and he arranged it so that we would have some seriously long conversations over a long period of time. And God had tried to get my attention through success, oddly enough, because here he was giving me all these things. I was, quote, trying to be religious in the church with the stained glass and the smoke and the water and stuff, and that didn't work. And he was blessing me with all these things, and deep down within... This guy was down there, and I was questioning, well, why am I worthy to get all this stuff? But, of course, I blew that off real quick and went out and tried to get some more strokes from the paper. So, in these conversations that I was having with the Lord, they were getting longer and longer, and pretty soon, one and two game losing streaks got into four and five game losing streaks, and things got really bad. Well, that can be a real bummer when you tie up your complete self-worth and how well you perform on the field. You see, I had no true self-identity. I had no true self-worth apart from baseball. I was nothing if you take away baseball. I had led my entire life to be a baseball player. With that taken away, I was nothing. I had no job skills, no identity. I didn't go to college. I graduated at 17 and went into pro ball. I was nothing as the way the world defines it. So I was really empty inside. Well, about this time, I started really recognizing some of those Jesus freaks on the team and the way they hung out and acted. You see, I didn't run around. I wasn't into the drug scene and the alcohol abuse and all that stuff. So I hung around a lot with the Christians. You know, they had their bridge games and they went up to study the Word, whatever that was. And that's when we'd sort of break, break apart. Well... As I was getting into these situations where I was doing progressively worse and worse, that sounded a little more appealing to me. You see, because that roller coaster I was talking about, these guys weren't on that e-coupon anymore. They were sort of on a nice steady ride. 
That was a, unbelievable. Tommy Hume, unless you're a baseball fan, you wouldn't even know who he is, but Tommy Hume was one of the best relievers in all of baseball in 79, 80, and 81. And he was also the team's chapel leader. And he was my friend. We hung out together, but when they went to do the word stuff, I sort of pulled back. Well, Humey, if he got, gave up five runs in extra innings and just got absolutely battered, he would come in the clubhouse and it would be the same as if he punched out the side in the ninth with the bases loaded. He never changed. He loved his wife. He was faithful. His kids loved him. They hung out together. He hunted. He fished. He went to church. He was playing all the right things. He was making good money. But he had a totally different view than I did of it. So did the other two Christians on the team. Dwayne Walker and Tom Foley. Tom's still playing right now with Montreal's shortstop. And they led their lives in such a way, you talk about lifestyle evangelism. I mean, these guys were walking the talk. They didn't know doctrine from a hole in the ground, but they knew how to walk the talk. And they were doing it. And I watched every move they made from that time I started doing horrible because they, to me, had the answer. They had something I didn't have, and I want to know what it was. Well, the Lord, in trying to get my attention through just some minor catastrophes, like four or five game losing streaks, He decided that He would really get my attention once and for all. We flew out to L.A. I was going to open up the series in Dodger Stadium. We were about four games out of first. It was 1984. Uh, I was on a five-game winning streak at the time. I don't know what my record was, maybe eight and four. I was doing well. Came into Dodger Stadium, felt awesome, nothing was hurting. Came into the game, had a two-hit shutout going into the eighth inning. Two outs, Steve Sachs comes up. Well, Steve had always just ripped me apart. So I was either going to walk him or just pitch around him and then get the next guy. Well, he swung at two bad pitches. It was quickly two balls and two strikes. And I threw a down-and-away fastball about knee-high on the black at 91 miles an hour. Well, he didn't really agree with that too well because, you see, he hit it back at about 115. And he hit it back and could not have hit me in a worse spot to jeopardize my career. Now, some of you guys are laughing. It wasn't there. <laughs> it, was, it was in my elbow. See? I'm Christian college, right. <laughs> anyway, he hit me in the elbow about one inch up from where you feel that bone is on the outside. Had he hit me one inch lower, it would have shattered my elbow into a thousand zillion pieces. But he didn't. He hit it one inch up. Immediately, it swelled up like a balloon. We rushed into the clubhouse. They had uh, Dr. Job come down and look at it. and <gasps> He freaked out. And, oh, we'll have to wait till the swelling goes down. We'll have to get x-rays right now. And, oh, my God, your career might not ever pitch again. And, and blah, 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 and all this. And, wow, here I was without God thinking who I was as a ball player. This was taken away in front of my home fans, and I had a shutout going. You've got to be kidding me. And all of this, and now God had my number one all-time consuming, focused attention. So we went up to Frisco, played three games, had x-rays, and they flew me back to Cincinnati. So I'm in Cincinnati all alone. My wife and kids stayed out here in Upland. And went to the team doctors, and they said, well, Frank, it's really questionable whether or not you'll play again. You see, because the contusion and the velocity in which the ball had hit you has uh, dislodged a couple bone chips in your elbow, and we're most likely going to have to have surgery to take those out. And in order to get there, we're going to have to cut through a whole bunch of tendons and ligaments that you really need to play with, and we're not sure if they'll rehab. 
which really meant you might not play again. So, at this time, Tommy Hume's wife, Susan, gave me a call and said, you know, I've just been praying for you uh, that, you know, you'd be able to trust the Lord through all this kind of stuff. And, oh, there goes that Christian lingo again, you know. But it was neat that she cared. She stepped out. And although the Christianese didn't impress me, the fact that she called me did. So when the team came back, I had always had a reason not to go to these, quote, word studies where they studied the Bible. And this time, on the disabled list with nothing to do, okay, I decided, yeah, sure, I'll go. And you know what? I loved talking to Christians up to that point if it was, quote, in a safe environment. If I knew that they didn't know what they were talking about. Like, how can you believe the Bible? Is it historical? Is it accurate? What about the translations of the text? Do you know that the original Greek text doesn't say what you say it does? What about evolution? I believe in science. And you see... If you couldn't defend your position to me, you were of no value. That's how the world says it. And if I was talking to an ignorant Christian, man, I'd win the battle, but I'd lose the war because I wouldn't get any answers. And they just didn't know how smart I thought I was. So going to this Bible study, we were at this Bible study, and I was locked and loaded, man. I couldn't wait to fire on these guys. And they didn't tell me, you see, that they had set this up and rigged this entire event just for my benefit. I thought, oh my, what a coincidence. And they had the Bible study and they had invited a guy because, of course, I had talked through, you know, the last six or seven years, I had talked to Humey and Foley and those guys and they knew where I stood and they were unscientific and unintelligent people. You know, you have the Bible and faith over here on Sunday from 10 to 11 and then you have the rest of your life in science and reality over here and the two shall never meet. Well, that was me. Well, and that was them. They really couldn't defend their position very well. They said, I believe by faith. I said, well, that's not good enough. Give me some reasons. And they never could. Well, at this meeting, they invited a guy and just introduced him as Wendell. Gee, how nice. Wendell. Nice name. Hi, Wendell. And we started this Bible study, and I couldn't wait. And they said, well, let's start in John 1.1. Okay, sounds good to me. And they said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And I said, wait a minute. I got a problem with that right there. And um, I had time to vent. I said, how can you, what are you talking about? The Word, and in the beginning, and when was this created? Was this before or after the Big Bang? And did we climb out of the goo yet? And, you know, wait a minute, what, what level in the, the strata are we in? And, and, you know, had Buddha died yet? I, I was all messed up. So I just vented all this stuff. And Wendell said, hmm, sounds like you're very interested in this topic. And I said, oh, I am. You just don't know how neat I think I am. And he said, well, listen. The guys tell me that you really like to read, and you've asked some really good questions. You know what? Since you're on the disabled list right now, and you've got some time on this next road trip, how about if I give you some material to read, you read it, come back, and we'll get together. And in fact, I, I know by the way that you're talking, Frank, that you can defend your position very well. And you know what? I am sincerely interested in knowing why you believe what you believe. And if you can convince me that what you believe is, quote, more right than mine, I believe what you believe. You know what I did? I went, convert, right on. So I started this road trip, and he gave me these books, and, man, page one, one of mere Christianity, I was ready to rip him apart. Okay? Well, that sort of took a little fire out of my motivation, you see. Well, that was just the left. The right came when... I started to read a book called Evidence Demands a Verdict. 
And for those of you that know what I'm talking about, there's a chapter in there called Liar, Lunatic, or Lord. Well, it just so happens that I was in my point in development where, yeah, it did demand a verdict. I had to make a decision. You see, because along the way, the book in between the left and the right, the headbutt, was a book called Scientific Creationism by Henry Morris. And I've since come to grow and know and love that organization, the Institute for Creation Research. You see, because my little pet peeve that I love to study was evolution. And after that was taken down, after that major philosophy and attitude was erased, I was standing before a holy and righteous God. You see, the origin of who you are is preeminent to you understanding who you are in Christ. See, if I truly felt that there was a, trans, uh, a God that just started the universe, pulled back, and had this, quote, system of evolution develop everything, and we just crawled out of the goo and all of a sudden decided to have this knowing of God, well, that was one thing, you see, because there really is no right and wrong then, and you can blame it on your animal flesh and blah, blah, blah. But if there was a true creator God that was intimate with me, that was another thing. So, I came to this chapter in, in uh, Josh's book, Liar, Lunatic, or Lord. And I had always said, well, Jesus was a good man. Well, that was out the window. No, he was anything but a good man. Because a good man doesn't lie and deceive people. Well, then he wasn't a good man or a liar. He was absolutely nuts, a lunatic. Well, I don't know about you and the study of lunacy, but he didn't act like a lunatic. And people didn't react to him like a lunatic. So that was out the window. Well, that was option number three. He is who he said he is, and he's done what he said he's done, and he'd be who he said he'd be. And I came to that realization in Pittsburgh, of all places, and crying one night in bed alone. The doctors had told me that my career was over. Uh, I most likely would not play again. We'd have to see how the rehab goes, and Dolly G will need surgery, and who am I if baseball's gone? I was completely humbled. See, I had nothing to lean on except him. You know, Mike Warnke says that some people think Jesus Christ is a crutch. Well, he's not. The only way you can get into heaven is him carrying you on a stretcher. It's not a crutch. We all need him. Some of those think we don't. And I came to the point in my life where I needed him. I wish I had realized that when I was five years old. So I prayed the sinner's prayer. And it wasn't, you know, bells and whistles and cherubim and seraphim, okay? But it was a pretty neat experience because in the morning, at 9 o'clock in the morning, which for you real people outside of baseball is like 5 in the morning, okay, Tommy Hume comes rap, 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 rap on my door. Now that's really early in the morning, 9 o'clock. So Hume comes to the door, and I've just had this awesome spiritual experience. And uh, he says, listen, I don't know why I'm coming over. Um, I know that we talk and you're reading some of this stuff, but um, I just got to tell you that Jesus loves you and he's thinking about you. But thanks, Jimmy. I'll see you at breakfast. Awesome. And I try to be cool about it, you know. I shut the door and boom, Niagara. And it was my confirmation that what I had done was right, that the Lord was there. Well, little did I know that there's a little network that goes on, you see, in pro athletics, when you make a decision for Christ, that infiltrates all of the ministries that have to do with pro athletes. 
And so you are met coincidentally by people at the airport greeting you and at your hotel. Oh, thought you might enjoy this and send you a book. Or, oh, by the way, can we do lunch? And all of these people are growing you spiritually without you knowing it. Well, by the time this long 17-day road trip ended, I came back ready to talk to Wendell in some depth. Wendell was, and well, actually is now, the National Director for Athletes in Action. Had a Bible in theology, theology, had been a seminary student, blah, 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 and was a really powerful, dynamic man. And I had no clue who he was until I had gotten so far into this studying that uh, the guys ended up telling me who he was, what a position he was. You know, that really taught me something, and I'd like to share with you on that, is that... Don't be so eager to lock and load and blow somebody away because you know you're right. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Only He can give the increase. And so many of us, so many times, just just blow somebody away. You're going to hell if you don't believe that. And you go it all. And it's got to be through compassion and love like the guy showed me. So, what happened now that I've made this big decision and accepted the Lord? Well, what a transition on the team. They had one more guy for chapel every, every Sunday, that was for sure. And I wasn't there to just polish my genie or my rabbit's foot. And we started a Bible study on the road because I just couldn't wait to get into this stuff. And I couldn't wait to tell the guys why evolution was wrong after all these months of telling them that it was right. So it was a really growing experience for them too. My teammates, however, reacted rather oddly. Here I was telling the dirty jokes and doing the whole routine with everybody and all of a sudden I wasn't into that scene anymore. All of a sudden playing baseball wasn't an end anymore. It was a means. All of a sudden recognizing my talent was a gift from God and it was a platform to share my faith from was a completely different attitude than serving self. So God saw it at that point when I'd grown in maturity with Him to, quote, giving my career back. You know, it was so painful. I was holding on so tightly saying, okay, God, here you are. This is it. Every time he pulled open a finger to get inside what I was giving him, it was so painful. And I learned to finally say, okay, Lord, here's my career. Whatever you want. If I win the Cy Young or I give up 32 runs tomorrow night, okay, I'm doing it for you. So what happened quote, not quite miraculously, but through God's healing process through modern medicine. Uh, I had surgery, got the bone chips removed, and quote, rehab, and uh, started pitching again. And I had always pitched to please myself or to get strokes from people. And now I was pitching with only one person in the stand. And he knew whether or not I was trying my best. Success and failure wasn't dictated upon runs was dictated upon how obedient I was to the gifts and the talent and the energy that he gave me that day. And I started performing, not better than I ever have. Boy, that would be a great ending to the story, but it's not. Uh, I went through some tough trials. I got absolutely hammered. I had lost my fastball and all my movement on my fastball. And I got absolutely eaten alive and drilled. In fact, so bad, they sent me down and released me. That was a humbling experience. So I went to the, down to the minor leagues uh, in 1987 after just failing for a year off and on and being very inconsistent in 87 in the minor leagues. And the Lord was growing me all through this period. 
And all of a sudden, baseball, because it wasn't so important, had taken a back seat to serving the Lord. So, there's always a very neat way in pro athletics to know if God's calling you to get out of the game or not. The opponent usually lets you know. Or your body. Well, the hitters were letting me know loud and clear. I, get, I was getting my infielders killed. And it was really sad. You know, my son at the time was about four years old, and he came up, and he knew I was pitching that night, and they tried to stay away from Daddy when he was pitching. And Daddy, he came up and said, Daddy, 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 listen, you're pitching tonight, huh? And I said, yeah, Frank, yeah, I am. He says, can I sit in left field so I can get a ball? <laughs> well, so that... Well, you know, when a five-year-old knows that things aren't going real well, you know, it's time to sort of hang them up. So anyway, I was in the minor leagues, and my arm was killing me. I'd had surgery and rehabbed, and Gina and I, my wife, just really felt like the Lord was calling us elsewhere. And we had a real peace about, quote, leaving baseball. So we got out of the game. We retired. I was getting bombed in AAA. Oh, yeah, I could have hung on and, and all that stuff, but I knew the Lord was calling me elsewhere. So I got out of the game, uh, decided that I wanted to go in the ministry. Actually, let me rephrase that. God was calling me into the ministry, but my ear wasn't sensitive enough to hear that call yet. I still had some self to get over and through. So I went to school at night at the ripe age of 29 and 30 and uh, got my business degree, got a real job. I have a real job now for another 60 days. And last August, I was accepted on staff and applied on staff with Athletes in Action. And what I'd like to do with AIA is my title is Director of Special Projects. How ominous, huh? What that really means is I will be working with Wendell to involve pro-athletes in sharing their faith from the very special and unique platform that God has given them of professional athletics in a variety of ways, whether it be sports camps, international outreaches, Christian videos, educational videos, Hume Lake, uh, Billy Graham Crusades. Petra has asked some guys to tour with them to go on stage. Uh, there's a whole bunch of neat things that athletes can do to help get the gospel out to kids. Because we've all been given a unique opportunity as athletes in that platform because kids will listen to us that much longer than they will often their teachers or parents. And that's a very awesome responsibility big awesome responsibility and I want to make sure that I use that most effectively and efficiently and through the experiences that God's given me I want to help other athletes do that as well and that's how I got to get here that's how I met Roger uh, and Roger had invited me and uh, it was just really really special to go through those things with the Lord because I know that there would be no way that I'd be able to do it without him that's my testimony. That's how I came to know the creator of the world. Thank you. How are we doing on time? Okay, don't all answer at once. Are we over? Five minutes? Uh, here, here's an odd request. I have a uh, testimony card. It's, uh, it's got my baseball... It's like a baseball card, except it's got the four spiritual laws in it. That would be neat for little brothers or sisters or people that you're trying to share with that uh, I'd be glad to sign and give them or give to you to, to hopefully witness to them. It's not as dramatic 
as the four spiritual laws in that pretty orange color. Uh, <laughs> you know what I meant. There was a girl, or is a girl, I hope, here, that wrote me a letter. And she began me getting interested in coming out to speak here. And I'm so embarrassed. I think her name is Cindy Atkinson. Does that ring a bell? Is she here? How are you? Thank you so much. That was neat. You're in the sports ministry program, right? No. Okay. Sorry. But anyway, let me tell you what she did. She wrote me a neat letter uh, because she had gotten hold of one of these cards. And uh, she wrote me asking what's it like to be a pro athlete and a Christian pro athlete and a whole bunch of questions. And although I didn't answer in incredible depth, I tried to give her very sincere truth out of my heart. And I also left my phone number. Well, she called back. And we had an outrageous phone call that was awesome. And she says, you know, that is just so neat. Why don't you come and share, and we'll see if you can come and speak. And I said, oh, gee, that'd be neat. How? She goes, well, listen, I know this guy named Roger Oswald, and he's got the sports ministry program, blah, blah, blah. And we put it together. And it ended up, about the following three weeks, Roger and I met at a, uh, a Christian conference down in Irvine, and... We, we got together and uh, made this day possible. I'll tell you what, I am just so jazzed getting an opportunity to talk to young people because this is where it's at. And I hope that I've gotten to share some things out of my life today that will enhance your walk. Number one, and, and out, of, out of my testimony, the, the thing that I want people to really grab hold on and, and to remember is that God will humble you to the point where you will listen to Him. And He's not like one of your professors here at the Master's College. He will not give you a test, have you fail, and then go on and give you another test. He will give you the test, and if you fail, He'll give you the test again. Except a little harder. And then He'll give you the test again. until you pass. If you have a difficult time, for instance, loving somebody, loving your enemy, Okay? Maybe it's a boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, uh, <laughs> whatever. Um, and you think that the answer is getting away or out of that situation. You're wrong. God has created that situation for you to grow in your walk. And if you think getting out of that situation is going to be better, you're wrong. Because he's just going to get a worse situation right around the corner. That's the first thing. Second thing is materialism. And, and I don't know how many people have come and told you, but I've, quote, had... I mean, I wasn't a multimillionaire and all that stuff, but I had what a lot of the things what the world calls success. I'm telling you, they're empty. They really are. When I was making $500 a month and eating jars of peanut butter and sleeping with four guys in a one-bedroom apartment, I thought, wow, if I make $1,000 a month, I can go to Denny's and I can go to Sambo's and I can have, you know, and I'll have it set. And if, boy, if I make $40,000 a year, I can get a brand new car and I can buy my wife a wedding ring and blah, blah, blah. And it just gets, it's always out there. You can, never, you can never have enough. So try to keep your priorities in tune with who God says you are. Your identity is based in who He says you are, not in what the world or you say you are. And on materialism, use people, I mean, don't use people and love things. Love people and use things. God bless you. Have a great day.